welcome to this episode of Lexical Tones, the podcast by Adjective New Music. My name is Garrett Schumann, and I will be your host today. Before we get to my interview with Joseph McCarty, I just wanted to point out that there were a couple interruptions um, in our recording experience. Uh, You will hear one of them. It's kind of funny, but uh, it does not impact the quality of the discussion Um, And so I just wanted to let you know about um, future slight technical issues that you may hear. Um, Also, I had not chosen the first musical example at the time of the record. Uh, We mentioned that is from the opera by uh, Handel, Il Pastor Fido, which I mispronounce in the interview. Uh, That's a recording that Joe participated in. And so I chose the third movement of the overture, which has a lot of harpsichord. So you're hearing a lot of Joe. Um, But without further ado, why don't we get to my conversation with Joseph McCarty? Enjoy. Scottish, inquisitive, unexpected. Joseph McCarty was born in Scotland to Congolese and English parents. He studied at the University of Edinburgh, where he fell in love with the harpsichords in the university's Russell Collection, one of the most extensive collections of historic keyboard instruments in Europe. He then studied harpsichord performance at the Royal Academy of Music and spent a decade as a freelance harpsichordist and conductor, working as music staff at opera houses from Berlin to Madrid and playing with numerous orchestras, including the Berlin Philharmonic. Since 2017, he has been a member of staff at the City of London School, where he is a choral director and works in diversity and inclusion. He is closely involved in projects centered on the music and career of Vicente Lusitano. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Thanks for having me. I am the last episode I did of this as a host was with a music theorist named Philip Ewell. And my goodness, I think that I said in that episode that I think he was the first music theorist to be on this program because the adjective new music composers collective, we're usually focusing on living composers like me and people who play living composers music. And I'm pretty sure you're the first early music harpsichordist to be on the show. So thank you for joining us and breaking that glass ceiling. I'm dragging you back 300 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get started with you introducing yourself a little bit more. I know that you said you wanted to explain your adjectives a little bit, but also, can you tell us a little bit about your musical story and how you came to get into performing music and early music and and being a a conductor and harpsichordist and all of the things that you do? Sure. So I think like the unexpected part of those adjectives really is more about how my career developed and how I ended up doing what I'm doing rather than me jumping out of like various corners of music in an unexpected way um but i think that i started um like sort of loving music and listening to music as a child as everybody does and we had um i was really strongly influenced by bbc radio 3 um which was kind of always playing in our house um and i grew up in a a family of very strong, very kind of churchy women um, who sang in their local church choirs or um, choral societies. And my granny, who was a 
an, an old-fashioned Baptist from the north of England. Um, I remember growing up sort of around her old novello vocal scores of oratorios like Handel and pieces that, that at the time nobody played and people are playing a bit more of, like Mendelssohn's St Paul and um, Beethoven, Christ on the Mount of Oz. Like, I couldn't play any of these things. I just remember, like, as a child, I just remember being them being in in various bookshelves and things like that. But um, I remember my granny always used to sort of sing along um, the alto parts with with any kind of radio performance of um, of an oratorio. And so I I grew up listening to music, um, classical music was was always playing in our house. And I really, really liked the organ. Mum took us to church and I really liked the organ. Um, and they wouldn't let me play the organ because I was too little and probably just really annoying. Um, so I had piano lessons. Um, again, that part, of, part of my unexpected and slightly annoying um, career history, that our, our neighbours across the way, we grew up, grew up in Dundee um, in and I, if, if this is an American audience, it's going to be quite hard to describe, but um, Dundee's a city in the northeast coast of Scotland, and much of the architecture is kind of late 19th century. And many of the houses are apartment blocks off a common stairway. So you, 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 um, you go in, it's called a close you go in the close, or it's called a close E, actually, you go in the close E, and you walk up the stairs and there'll be a door on either side of the stairs, or sometimes more than one door on either side, on each on each floor. And on our floor, there was our door and there's our neighbour's door. We didn't have a piano, but our neighbours had a piano, and I used to go and, like, plink around on their piano, to the extent it was so annoying that they wheeled the piano across the landing so that I could just sort of mess around in my own house and not annoy them. Um, and I started having these piano lessons with a really nice lady up the road and uh, she taught me this really invaluable skill which which at the time which was to be able to read music and to read staff notation um, and I um, and I really took the opportunity to also learn songs and stuff like Beatles songs and mess around with chord symbols and I, I stopped having piano lessons because I wanted to use the loud pedal or the sustain pedal or whatever you call it and, and um, she had different ideas and I was a bad student so I stopped having formal lessons and I started messing around on the piano and improvising and playing Beatles songs with the chord symbols and eventually I managed to persuade somebody to teach me the organ um, that I'd always wanted to play and I played that all through high school uh, and went to Edinburgh University as an organist. Um, and there discovered um, this amazing collection of keyboard instruments um, and, and those people that are interested in harpsichords. So anybody listening to a, in a music school, if your music school has a copy of a Tascan harpsichord, um, it's probably a copy of the original, which sits in um, the Russell Collection in St. Cecilia's Hall in Edinburgh. And that was one of the first harpsichords I ever played, um, which is just an amazing privilege when you think about it. Um, and in those days, all you had to do was go down there, ring the doorbell and say, I would like to play instrument X. So I would like to play this keyboard instrument from 16th century Florence, or I would like to play this 18th century Parisian harpsichord. And they would say, yes, sure, please, would you go and wash your hands first? And that was like, that was the, that was the extent of the prep that we had to do. 
and then you were just let loose on these fantastic instruments and what i loved about that not only the sound worlds that that they have the kind of resonance and the richness of especially harpsichords the richness of all the harmonics that buzz around when you're playing but um also the um activity that you can get involved with so as an organist often you're kind of you're accompanying the choir, especially in the British tradition, the English chord tradition, you're accompanying the choir, you're way up in the loft, trying to get the music right, um, trying to stay kind of underneath the singers and just get everything right for them so that, you know, the, the service can continue. Whereas with harpsichord, like you're right in the middle of the ensemble and you're improvising chords. And I loved improvising chords ever since I was a kid. And you're contributing how you feel about this particular harmony of the music and how everyone else is playing at a particular time. You just have this outrageous amount of freedom when everyone else is playing the written text of the music. Like you're just playing, you say, I think that this chord should sound like this and it should have this shape. Um, and and if you're lucky, everybody else agrees. So I I really fell in love with playing harpsichords, especially harpsichord continuum, working with other musicians in that way. And I managed to get a place at the Royal Academy of Music to do my postgrad in performance and the music degree at Edinburgh. My undergrad at Edinburgh had been very traditional, um, really traditional British. Um, late 90s, early noughties, undergrad, lots and lots of pastiche composition in the style of Palestrina and uh, Bach and lots and lots of figured bass reading. Hands up, I actually use that now in my career, but I know not, not everybody does. <laughs> Following on from Filio, um, I know that not everybody uses figured bass. I use figured bass, but yeah, I, I see the problems with teaching it as a kind of universal um, and normative thing. Um, but lots and lots of figured bass. Uh, lots of pastiche composition, lots of history. And so going to um, going to the Royal Academy of Music where I was was suddenly expected to be just a performer was was quite an interesting. It's really challenging actually when I started because I had never really practiced as much as I did when I was you know there in my first year at the academy. Um, so that was a big learning curve, but it was a wonderful thing just to learn the real craft of my instrument. and I had some fantastic professors there that that were just so into the sound you make on your instrument. And I think that is the most important thing. So I graduated from the Royal Academy of Music as a harpsichord player. And I didn't really know what I was going to do with myself. I had worked quite a lot with singers when I was at the Academy, kind of not by design. Um, they just, you know, singers often need accompanying. And, and we had done one opera. We'd done a, a performance of L'Incoronazione di Popea by Monteverdi, which blew me away. Um, and so I was just kind of hanging, you know, you graduate and you think, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do now? And I got a phone call. This is where the unexpected comes in. That's why I got a phone call from a person, <laughs> a music agency. Um, and she turned out to be a conductor's agent. And they were looking for an assistant conductor for a performance, uh, uh, a revival of Alcina at the Komische Oper in Berlin. And I said, yes, yeah, sure, I'm free. And then I asked my friend, where's the Cornish opera? And I thought it was an <laughs> opera in Cornwall. But actually it was the Komische Oper, which is like one of the um, one of the amazing opera houses in Berlin, one of the three 
big opera houses in Berlin. Um, and and it was pre-Brexit. So, Garrett, I got on a plane and I went and I played my stuff and it was fine. Um, and I, I got into this world of working in Handel operas and Monteverdi operas and Rameau operas and Purcell operas um, in various houses um, in Britain and in continental Europe um, throughout the kind of throughout the early part of my career. And it was an amazing, amazing experience to be so involved in in that world and, and so involved in the machinery of a theatre production to be like a, a, a small part if that big machine is always is always so fantastic. Um, and then I, I took a bit of a sidestep um, into education and um, into teaching and to, into directing choirs. I kept playing the organ. I'd always been an organist um, and I'd always been involved with voices, but um, directing children's choirs. Um, and, and that's where I end up now. I think that's where my story ends. So, um, or not ends, but that's where the story meets, meets us now. I hope it's not where my story ends, but um, it's where my story meets us now. So, yeah, my, I guess that it has been. Yes. Yeah, so I was born in Scotland. So that's my Scottish adjective. And then it was unexpected because I didn't really know any of this was going to happen. And then what was the middle adjective? Inquisitive. Inquisitive. Which, which kind of speaks to what, <laughs> at least how we know each other. That's so true. Yeah. Um, which we'll talk about yeah. in, a, in a little bit. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm just... So, totally blown away by the story first of all as an american it's incredibly quaint in so many different ways but but the amount of love at the center of these experiences mm-hmm. is like so apparent yeah. to me as 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 your friend and and yeah. hearing hearing that and i think that that's a really the also the something that stuck out to me is is you describing this duality mm-hmm. in your education between like sort of the generalist experience you had at the University of Edinburgh mm-hmm. and then the highly specialized yeah. um, experience at the Royal Academy of Music. That's something yeah. I think about a lot um, as a composer is you know, a lot of what, you know, one of the struggle and this is comes through in, in your story is something we mm-hmm. all deal with as musicians trying to be professional musicians it's such an unstructured professional life that it's really hard to like figure out what like doing it is like what yeah. activity constitutes like being a composer or sure. being a harpsichordist or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, because much like you, I, you know, there's, I think about my musical practice as a composer as like part of the one facet of like my musicality and so I, I can totally relate to this, to to what you describe of like kind of feeling the boundaries of being so focused on just playing your instrument. And yeah. I also, one of the reasons I'm a composer is I hated practicing too. <laughs> so I can, because I was a trumpet player when I was a kid okay. and I just hated practicing. I was like right. good enough without practicing to like right. do everything I needed to do. Yeah. But I hated practicing. I really yeah. did not fulfill my potential as a trumpet player, but composing is something that for me just like happens in my brain. So it's not right. something like the, I don't have to practice composing sure. except in, instead of, except to like develop a practice of yeah. composing. Sure. Um, I think 
and the way, but, but something that, since you are an international guest, and there's Hi. something you described about the experience of playing a harpsichord from the 17th century or something yes, like sir, that. Yes, yeah. And there is something so interesting to me as an American thinking, and, and you were like, oh, your music school in America might have a copy of one of these harpsichords. Well, no, no, no. The point, the point I'm trying to make is something I think about a lot. I've thought about for a really long time as yeah. an American composer is like, what does that mean? Because we're kind of in the shadow mm. of a European tradition mm. and hearing you talk about like, oh, I could walk into this room and yeah. play a piece of history is yeah. just an experience that Americans can't have at all. Like, the, of course, the music came alive because mm. it was like supposed to happen mm. on that machine, on that yeah. instrument, yeah. in that space. Like, the talking about the resonance of the overtones, like, yeah, yeah. that's like the space where it does resonate. Yeah. And I feel like one yeah. of the challenges I've always considered as an American composer yeah. working in a, in a highly European oriented space is like well where do we find those residents resonances as americans and that sort of thing yeah, but so yeah. i just i was really moved by that because i was i was in kind of envious too that it's just sort of like down the road you can go have think, a magical experience you know <laughs> it's important to say it's really important to say that like we're we are not all in britain running around into like it's, there is not a, an historic harpsichord around every corner <laughs> 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 The Russell Collection was, is a really amazing, um, amazing and quite unique um, group of instruments um, that the Edinburgh University houses. And uh, I think I was, re yeah, I mean, I was really privileged to go there. I, again, the, the kind of, the kind of naiveness of, of being a teenager. I mean, I didn't want to go to Edinburgh University because there was a collection of early keyboard instruments, um, but the, um, it was a real privilege to be able to access them. And actually we had a privilege which people nowadays, I think don't have, which we could just go and play them, which is a very different experience, I think, to what students now, you know, have to book them and, and the instruments have like a, a, a playing quota and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so, so I think, yeah, we, we were just really, really privileged and really lucky to be able to walk into that that stuff but i think it's important to note that we're <laughs> we're not we're not like we're not groaning with early i haven't got one downstairs in my house <laughs> it's not it's not let, happening let our imaginations run wild please <laughs> um before i want to ask you more about this part of your career jet setting across europe now, I'm really curious now. This Komisha Oper production yeah. that you participated in, yeah. or maybe there are others too. I I lived in Berlin when I was in college for a summer, okay, right? And I I actually did not go to the Komisha Oper. I went to the other two, um, oh. the Staats Oper and the Deutsche Oper. Yeah, and because um, I was felt prudish, and I was like. Their productions are too weird. Or maybe the I wasn't into any of the operas that they yeah. were doing. I don't know. I went yeah, to the six productions were kind of weird. Yeah. I went to six show, yeah. yeah. I went to six operas and it was like the greatest experience of my life. But it was very yeah. similar to what I was just saying. It was like it felt like going to a baseball game in America where this is just like part of like the tapestry mm. of our culture. Mm. Like people were like it just felt so natural. Mm. You know, mm. like the energy from the audience, yeah. like yeah. like a where in the United States, it's so much more of a production and like 
to go to the opera is like a performative act. It's not, it's right. not like a normal thing. Right. Um, but, uh, and I saw a production of Tristan and Isolde and at the beginning at the Deutsche Oper and at the mm. beginning, the cellos weren't together and people gasped in the audience. <gasps> it was so funny. But I wanted to, was there, so this production at the Komische yeah. Oper that you're yeah. in, was there weird stuff in the production? Oh, yeah. Cause it was, yeah, it was yeah. a David Alden. I mean, it was a wonderful production. I mean, again, just the, just like we, my, my youth was wasted on me as I was young. Because um, it was, it, I, did, I had no clue because the first production I was in of Alcina was, was a David Alden production. Um, and David uh, is one of the most incredible um, opera directors. And it was a, a wonderful, as ever, insight into David's mind of of what what does Alcina mean <laughs> um and it was a it, yeah it was it was it was a it was a production as out there and left field as as any you know it definitely held its own with the rest of the Komische Oper productions um and yes yeah, so we we had wonderful um what was the because the conceit of well that's not the conceit but the story is Alcina turns her lovers into beasts, doesn't she? And that, you know, make of that, you know, very misogynistic trope, what you will. But um, I think David took that into a kind of absurdly comic um, vein where sort of people were in, people kept sort of dressing up in animal suits and doing silly dances and then coming out of them. And and it was it was kind of they turned the theater into a I think she was she was running an old movie theater. That's right. She was running an old movie theater and everybody sort of went in. She was like some kind of glamorous 1920s film star and everyone was kind of bowled over and and um, and hypnotized by by that. So, yeah, it was it was an amazing it was an amazing show. So something I find really interesting about productions like that because i've seen some like modern reinterpretations of of, of luli for mm. example and 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 later operas by later composers is this um you know the the, the question of like relevance or urgency mm. or pertinence mm. in a contemporary setting of pieces that are that old mm. and and some of it seems like i th- i think the cynical part of me makes it makes me sort of skeptical of some of mm. those aesthetic choices. <laughs> and, and so I'm, because it feels like window dressing mm. or it's just like trying, putting lipstick on a pig to like attempt to make, um, a make, make this old piece like relevant. Yeah. And I'm curious, like as an, as an early music specialist mm. or maybe in, in, with respect to that particular production, yeah. like, did you feel like it really spoke to the essence of the piece? I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I think Graham Vick, who recently died, a wonderful opera director, um, director of the Birmingham Opera Company, um, which was an amazing, amazing institution in Birmingham of not only of fantastic opera, but of kind of social justice, um, which he was really, really, really the driving force behind. Um, and Graham had been director of opera at Glyndebourne and he'd worked for Scottish Opera and he'd also directed it all over the world. Um, he, I remember, because I worked in his company for a season and I remember him saying, you cannot, we were doing Monteverdi and he said, you cannot turn this into admiration. You know, the point at which this becomes admiration, oh, look at all the sparkly stuff 
look at listen to the nice tunes it's it's pointless we may as well not do it um for him i think the idea was that there are themes within this which speak to our current condition um and that's the reason we put the show on and i think that was very much the same with the alcina there's there's stuff about desire what does desire do what does desire do to people what, what bad decisions do people make um because they want something um and that is not purely an 18th century concern it might be dressed mm-hmm. up it might be dressed up in the 18th century in the cloaks of some some real i mean you know early 18th century early modern patriarchy is a whole world of uh, you know it's a whole different world i mean it, it's not even about well i i, I won't go there because <laughs> but there's there's some wonderful articles by freitas about about kind of the um 18th century ideas around that but um it might be it might be cloaked in 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 different language both musically different languages and obviously and and in and in kind of poetic language from the 18th century but i think if i think the if the concerns don't speak to us if you can't find something where the concerns are speaking to the audience that sat in front of you um i think then it just becomes it becomes like looking at a music box or a or a, or a pretty painting that moves um and so I would say that those productions really worked. And I'd probably go a bit further, if I may, and say that there's something about the, the Baroque aesthetic, there's something about the concentration of expression within such limited means in terms of the musical language, which makes the, which makes the expression of certain ideas incredibly vital and incredibly punchy and incredibly hard to think. And I don't know why I'm thinking about it, but I'm thinking about those moments. You know, in The Grapes of Wrath, when, um, when you get these moments where you just feel, I think, you just feel like you're kind of being punched. <laughs> uh, the, the Steinbeck, the Steinbeck novel? novel. There's a, there's a line there, isn't there? Um, and the, when the, 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 the men go into the towns as one of them, like the men go into the towns to beg for food to cringe and beg for food to try to steal and in that 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 little quote he crystallizes i think the desperation and the shame and the hunger and the poverty and all of these things that he could spend pages and i feel that there's something about that about the way baroque music especially baroque opera speaks that it crystallizes an emotion crystallizes an idea for expression and it absolutely socks it to you and you're kind of and so i i feel that it goes well somehow with with productions that are that are not what we would you know what you would imagine a baroque opera to look like you know everyone in plumes and and doing funny gestures and all that sort of stuff i I think i think this i think it works i think i think there's the, the the expression is so direct that it it works with those those kind of productions that's that's the hill I'm gonna put my flag on. <laughs> I I, uh, I I couldn't. I'm, I'm not a, as much of an expert on the Baroque operas as you are, but I couldn't agree more with your thoughts on the Baroque aesthetic. And it's totally self-serving because that my the Baroque period is one of my favorite musical periods. <laughs> much of my favorite music is from mm. the Baroque period, and then it and then like I skip. I like early classical, mm. 
but I basically skip all of the 19th century. And then, and then I like more recently composed music. And I mean, I guess like a hundred years ago, 120 years yeah. ago, isn't that recent, but feels recent. And I think, yeah. And I think there, there's probably something s- similar in like the, the expressive immediacy of the Baroque yeah. music, especially the the Baroque music I like, which is like Vivaldi and Italian yeah. uh, and French and, um, and, and, uh, the Zelenka mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Bieber, yeah. and like, you know, all of those people who are like really expressionistic. Yeah. Um, so, but this kind of, the, the thinking of the sort of immediacy or like that sort of that living essential quality that, that this um, director from the Birmingham opera that you brought yeah, up was talking Vick. about. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It makes me think, it, it makes me think of, what I you know, there's sort of this this um, a quintessential conflict in the, our field right now, which I think is between, and this speaks to I'm going to start I'm going to bring up Handel as mm-hmm. an example of this, which will lead us into our first listening mm. example. Um, but um, there's sort of this conflict that like the work we've been doing together is involved in this too, where what classical music is. Mm has been turned into such a museum piece or such a, a, a music box, like you, to use it, the metaphor you, you did. Garrett, I'm going to have think... to, I'm going to have to stop you because the cat has brought in a live animal. Okay. Uh, everyone, you may have noticed a bad edit because um, we had to pause the recording because Joe's cat brought a dead mouse into their house, but that has been <laughs> rectified and I've yes. been dealt so with. I'm going to the question I was going to ask was I was I'm really moved by this idea that the um director of the Birmingham Opera shared with mm. you that you just conveyed about like the importance of like finding like the living aspects of these older pe- operas and and emphasizing those in yeah. productions. I think it speaks to yeah. the central conflict that Class, the field of classical music, you know, in the biggest umbrella term possible, um, is dealing with mm-hmm. right now, which is this: it classical music has be- become so um, objectified, like turned into these cultural, these like fixed cultural objects, like the music box metaphor yeah. that you mentioned, um, yeah. or maybe you mentioned in a part that nobody heard because of that edit. Um, and and that's like a very capitalistic thing. It helps make it helps sell it. It mm-hmm. helps people. It's fascistic yeah. because it helps people accumulate power. And a lot of the resistance mm-hmm. to like the realism, the real detail in the history of classical music that that people are are calling a culture war and like all these things. I feel like. You know, understanding like the living breathing reality of how these musician these composers and musicians lived how this music was made like the real themes and quintessential topics that they were exploring you know centuries ago um that sort of fights the that objectification that is so critical to how a lot of people engage with and practice and build institutions around classical music now and so i feel like i feel like this like quote-unquote culture war idea really has to do with like fighting the living truth of the music that we're 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 playing and um our first Mm -hmm. the first piece of music that you um uh 
suggested to share is from a Handel opera, Il Pasto Fido. Um, yeah. And it's a recording that you participated in with La Nuova Musica. And, and we'll listen to that in a moment. But I, want, I just wanted to ask you about Handel as a as as a figure involved in this you know people resisting the truth about Handel and with in in terms of his uh profiteering from the transatlantic slave trade maybe it wasn't profiteering but his investment in um that the economic practice of the transatlantic slave trade and i'm curious you know you are a person of african descent and you played a lot of Handel and you grew up listening to Handel. When did you learn about Handel's involvement in the slave trade and what did that do to your relationship to his music? So I think I found out about about Handel's involvement in the trade in enslaved African persons um, a few years ago, not, not long ago. Um, I think the research is not that old in the scheme of things. I don't think it made a huge difference in terms of how I viewed George Frederick Handel the person because we don't actually have a vast amount of archives about what George Frederick Handel was like as a person and so I you know it's, it's not like he's sort of one's favorite historical figure and you think well George Frederick would say this at this point um I think what it does do is it opens up for us in Britain so much more information about how much of our cultural artifacts if you like are directly connected with the exploitation and extraction that went on um, in the colonies of the British Empire. Um, and if you look at someone like Handel's, uh, one of Handel's biggest patrons, the Duke of Chandos, um, he was a really uh, big investor in the Royal African Company, which was an, uh, a slave trading company. Um, many members of the what was called the Royal Academy of Music, not the institution at which I studied, <laughs> um, but with an opera company in the 18th century called the Royal Academy of Music, which Handel um, was um, a member of. Many of them were um, investors in the Royal African Company. Uh, I know that the National Trust, for example, which is the the big body which looks after all of our beautiful historic houses, um, big houses in Britain, recently did a project to can to draw the draw the you know connect the very few dots between those beautiful expressions of 18th century art and the horrors of the um enslavement and exploitation of african persons in the west indies and in other parts of the british empire so it's it's uh, it's something which opens up i think a connection that was we possibly all knew about, but confirms in a way um, that that um, that that Handel was involved in it, and so much so much of of what we do is connected to that atrocity. Um, and then I suppose the question, the next question is, what do you do about it? But I think that I think that a lot of people feel so uncomfortable with the first bit, with admitting and accepting the truth about that. Um, I think so many people find it existentially threatening somehow that you know we're all we're all going to never ever hear a piece of George Frederick Handel's music ever again and you know all of that sort of it is sort of zero sum um quite frankly nonsense um that it it stops people from from really accepting the reality and then reflecting on what 
what the appropriate response to that reality might be. Well, I want to explore this question more, but I think first we should listen to a selection uh, from the recording of Il Pasto Fido um, that that you made. So we're going to listen. This is um, La Nuova Musica performing uh, il, a selection from Handel's opera Il Pasto Fido. Okay, we just heard a selection from Handel's opera Il Pasto Fido, uh, recorded by La Nuova Musica with our guest, Joseph McCarty, on the recording. And uh, I'll just note a peek behind the curtain. We've returned to finish our interview a week later because we had some, <laughs> we had some technical difficulties. So things might sound a little different, but to, to you listening, it's all one conversation. Yeah. Um, so Joe, thank you for sharing that that bit of your work and from sure. from your jet setting life as a um, operatic continuo player yeah. um, across Europe. Um, but I the reason um, we connected is mm. is different and unrelated to um, your high flying harpsichord days. So I'm <laughs> 
I think that is so funny. I'm still tickled at the idea of being an operatic continuo player. Because it sounds like you, it sounds like one plays consider really much louder. Maybe you did play much louder. I don't know, but it sounds, yeah. it sounds awesome. I like I like that name. So, but why don't you why don't you explain how we met and and the work that we've been doing? Because it's an, as as one of your adjectives indicated it is an unexpected turn i think for both of us yeah so well it's it was certainly unexpected for me um i know garrett you'd been working on on um the life and music of vicente lusitano and for longer than i had um and that's how we came to meet because i um like everybody else i think in who's connected to the internet and certainly like most people of the African diaspora. This time last year was, um, or this time sort of, forgive me, last year in the summer, 2020, I was looking and following the protests and events um, following the murder of George Floyd. And I happened upon a photograph that Alice Jones had tweeted. Alice Jones is a is a musician, a flutist and composer, I think, in New York. And um, she was going to a protest and she had a placard. And on that placard, it uh, had a list of black composers. And on amongst that list was a name that I didn't know and some dates that I did not reckon with. And the name was Vicente Rusitano and the dates were 1520 to 1560, those, around those dates. Um, and I was kind of blown away because I... I am involved in early music, I'm involved in choral music, and I thought, oh my goodness, I did not know there was someone of African descent that was a black person that we know about making music um, around that period. Like whoever, whoever job, whoever had the job of letting me know about Vicente Lusitano had failed in that <laughs> um, until Alice Jones. And so I did what everybody probably does, which was just thought, right, I'll go and I'll go on to IMSLP or CPDL and I'll download some of his music and I'll program it and it'll be great and we'll have a really nice time. And then I discovered that at that time there wasn't any music available in modern editions um, and there was still very little available about him. Um, and that's how I came across your article in Van. And at the time, I was still on social media. So I, <laughs> I connected you, with you, didn't I, through Twitter. And we started having conversations and found a real kind of rapport over the music of Vicente Lusitano. And the rest is um, history. <laughs> the rest is what, what we've been doing, what we've been working on together over the last, say, I don't know, what is it now, 16 months, something like that? Yeah, I mean... Basically, after we had a couple months of like just getting together on Zoom or Skype mm -hmm. or whatever, and just talking about, oh, this Vicente Lusitano guy is mm. pretty cool. Mm. Um, I there, I sort of dragged you along into this these big research projects that have iterated in, in interesting ways, and it's been really, I think, um, unexpected is such a great mm. adjective for this because. In a way, it's very, I never thought I would do early music research because it's not a specialty of mine. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do a lot of what we've done because I can't read mensural notations. So, <laughs> so 
uh, Joe does all of that in our work. Um, I do that bit. Just to just to explain a little bit of our publications and what we've been doing, uh, we wrote a uh, ten thousand word article that is under peer review at the Journal of Musicological Research about Lusitano, um, including the most extensive analysis of his compositions to date, which Joe did primarily. And um, then we presented at this conference about digital music studies, because mm -hmm. so much of this work has been, has taken place online and has been shaped by dynamics of, of digital music discourse and um, all the good and all the bad that mm -hmm. comes with that. And, and that has led to a publication opportunity in a new volume called The Digital Sociology of Music or possibly something else by the time it gets published. <laughs> and the most exciting thing is that, cause one of the, you know, you said in, 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 in your comment, mm. that your last uh, bit when you were talking about how you were like nobody taught me about Lusitano. No. Like, how did I not know about this? Mm. Well, the big reason is leading, you know, the most trusted sources for information about music historical figures in classical music, like Grove, right. doesn't mention that he is black. And what's exciting is that we are under contract to revise the Grove article. Well, to and be fair, to be fair, it does. They do mention that they Grove. No. Well, Grove says that his racialized identity is, quote, not corroborated, unquote. It, and also Grove uses a the term mestizo, which is a, is actually pretty erroneous because that is a word that's used to describe people who are part Native American and part Black and part European that's in correct. the Spanish yeah. Spanish colonies in mm. the New World. It just it's not an adequate source on that mm. part of his life mm -hmm. for sure, mm -hmm. which is the point. And so it's exciting that we get to contribute to updating that as well. Um, it. It's been a it's been a real in, it's an, it's been an incredible journey. I mean, we're we're actually going to present at another conference um, in the summer of 2022. That's in France. In France, which just just seems like the coolest thing <laughs> that possible. Um, I haven't and, left the country in years now. <laughs> uh, yeah, me neither. Me neither. And it's uh, it's. I wonder who it'll be easier between the two of us. I wonder who will have the easier yeah. time. <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> um, but it's, I think what's what's very interesting to me about the ex this experience is neither of us are like professional scholars. And I think that there's part of, in, in the experience of working on Lusitano's music, like at least you're an early music specialist and choral conductor. So it like kind of makes sense that you would care about Renaissance music. Mm. I like Renaissance music. Mm. I like Baroque music, like mm. we discussed in the earlier mm -hmm. part of the interview, but it's not my area of expertise, but there is this factor in Lusitano's story and the story of how he was not researched well for mm. hundreds and hundreds of years mm -hmm. There is something incredibly urgent that I find mm -hmm. incredibly applicable to contemporary discussions about um, hierarchies of oppression in the field of classical music performance and study in Europe and in the United mm -hmm. States. And I think this this goes back to the story you just told about 
the way you found him was a protest sign for a George Floyd Black Lives Matter yeah. event. Yeah. And and there's there we found consistently in this experience of working of learning more about Lusitano and what his life means and and in so, his music to an extent as well. Um, we keep finding these elements that are like extremely pertinent to these, what seem like very, very modern, fresh discussions. And it's so, mm-hmm. he's such a symbolic figure of this concept that you've helped me refine through our research, which I call the recursive cycle of erasure, TM. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. No one's allowed to use it apart from Garrett, yeah. which is really annoying because um, I want to you use can it. Li- you can license okay, thanks. <laughs> um, no, but uh, that, and it's just this idea that you can see in Lusitano is a great marker of this. You can mm-hmm. see consistently at different points in the history of composed music in the European tradition um, that you have these figures who are, have marginalized identities. They succeed to an extent, mm-hmm. but the limitations on their success imposed on them by socio-political oppression mm-hmm. Um, and economic oppression makes it easier for them to be minimized and then erased. And so you have this like cyclical um, experience mm-hmm. where particularly scholars have to, you know, generation after generation, people who are interested in telling fig- the stories of figures like Lusitano mm-hmm. have to work really hard mm-hmm. just to achieve legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're finding, we see we see that now, like um, in, a lot of the debate about these sort of quote unquote identity politics, which is a fraught term that white right wing people use. Was it identity um, politics, otherwise known yeah, as yeah. politics? Yes. You know, <laughs> a lot of the energy is about just establishing the legitimacy mm. of this topic as something that needs to be recognized. And I think sure. Lusitano, with our experience, you know, talking to people about oh, there was a Black Renaissance composer. Mm. There's a lot of resistance just with that. So There is, and, and you're right. I mean, I was thinking, funnily enough, I was looking at, um, I was looking at the, the, the Twitter feed of a wonderful historian um, who works in Britain called Olivette Otelle, who is um, the author of a fantastic book called African Europeans. Um, and if you, you haven't read it yet, do read it, everyone. Um, who actually she she was she quoted um she was quoting tony morrison actually it goes what you were saying about the idea of of constantly having to work to uh so what's that the, the tony morrison quote from 1975 um you know they say you have no they say you have no art so you go dredge that up they say you have no kingdom so you go dredge that up and you you, you spend the whole time trying to justify in a way, or trying to to kind of undo what racism says about African descended people, um, and I think yeah, you're right that there's a this sense of trying to acquire legitimacy. And I was reading today actually a I was reading today an article a book review by Mary Rambaran Ohm, who's a medievalist, um, and she wrote something brilliant about how she's a she's a person of color working in. Um, medieval English scholarship and talking about how I think the, the the line she used is how our ancestors struggled to leave traces and I think that's really interesting as well I think from a Lusitano point of view I think we assume 
that historical figures have the the means, the liberty always to leave detailed things about themselves. And if they don't, it's somehow they're, they chose not to. And I think what we're finding actually, um, as um, Otelli does in African Europeans, is that you're looking at the margins. You're having to look at the margins because you're talking about marginalized people. <laughs> you're having to look at the margins of history. You know, we're not talking about Tudor monarchs about whom there's just tons and tons of information written. We're 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 searching in in corners and um, for for the traces uh, that these people managed to leave behind. And I think that's important to to say definitely. I think along those lines, and what a beautiful phrase that they struggled to leave traces yeah uh, i i think what that brings to mind is something that i wish particularly um ac music academics teachers musicians mm. uh, in the classical music contemporary music space with my identity so white cisgender men would consider more as the amount that we've lost mm. that will just never particularly by I mean it's, as time goes on we just lose so much by people uh so much music that we can't possibly keep track of everything mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and 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 the amount that or who is impacted by that loss of course plays out over hierarchies of oppression and inequality mm. and I think we should be troubled by, I wish more people came came from, to these topics from the point of view that we should be troubled by what we don't know and will never be able to know <laughs> because because the way we keep history in this field is so poor mm -hmm. and even um, there's a I was reading recently doing some research on a different composer of African descent named Julia Perry, who was active in the mid 20th century. Mm. And, and this um, musicologist who sadly died in 2019, and I just wish I could have written her an email, right. um, yeah. named uh, Mil Dr. Mildred Denby Green. She wrote a lot about Black women composers mm. in the United States in the 20th century. Um, and it's either in her part of her book, which is called uh, Black Women Composers of Genesis, really great book, um, or in something else, she acknowledges that you you cannot, especially with, with composers of African descent or composers from groups that were subjugated through the practice of slavery, you just cannot, or subjugated in any way, I guess, but the, the degrees of violence are different with different people, but you cannot overlook the fact that there were very talented people who never had the opportunity to use their talents to make music. Yeah. And I mean, that's true with, with anyone, but of mm. course, the more oppressed the group is, the more that that loss happens. Mm. And it's really, uh, with Lusitano is such, such a delicate, fragile story. Like we almost, there's one piece of information that points to his identity mm. in a pretty unambiguous way. Mm -hmm. um, and it was basically unknown from the 17th century until 1977. Mm. So, so it's, it's, it's kind of a miracle that we know anything yeah. about him. So and, and, and it's, I, there's something solemn working with him about, well, who are the people we don't even have this information yeah. on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. I, and actually, um, 
we think Anish Bora has done that work, hasn't he, on African-descended musicians in Germany. And I think he's working on something at the moment um, about a group of African-descended musicians. So he's, he's in the early modern period, um, some, some um, documentation about them playing. And yeah, I mean, we think about, we think about that. Um, and also I think we, you know, again, we're dealing with the ephemeral thing, as you said, that is music. So if you didn't get a chance to write it down or if you didn't get a chance nowadays, I suppose, to make a recording of it somehow in another way, some kind of audio file of it, then, then we don't know that it's, you know, future generations don't know that it's happened. I suppose the, the problem we've got with the way that Western classical music has developed or the historiography of Western classical music has developed is we assume that if you didn't have the chance to write it down, it's because it wasn't worth writing down. And that's where the problem, I think, um, that's one, one of where one of the problems arises is the, is the idea that, that the only stuff that survives is the stuff that was written down. And actually, even if you think about really, really canonical composers, there must be improvisations by Beethoven that would have blown your mind that we have no idea what was, was going on. So it's not, it's not simply about the marginalized. I think it's, although I think that that is the most pressing view, but I think there's also, there's also something to be said for how we've taken the idea of writing a piece of music down and made that somehow music capital M. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, that the, the recorded artifact or the artifact that records the, the sound is somehow um, the, 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 the measure of, of, of a person's musical worth or activity. And, and, and we just know that that just can't be true because it's, it's, it's so limited to a very, very small corner of human music making in one bit of the world. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, it's, Even Lusitano, uh, mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things about him is he was a really, really incredible improviser yeah. who, whose musical practice, as, as far as we can tell from the evidence that we have, mm was at least 50-50 improvisation and probably more improvisation than not. I think, yeah, if you look at the, if you look at the, I mean, this is where I get really geeky. (laughs) If you look at the job, if you look at the job that, that a church musician had to do in 16th century Catholic Europe, at least, there's no way that it could have been achieved um, by writing everything down, it just wouldn't wouldn't be time um, mm-hmm. to get to get to to produce that am- amount of written music. Um, and we've got documentary evidence of people listening to people improvise and saying it's as it's as good. You know, I can't believe they hadn't written that down. Um, and Lusitano pres- provides us with this fantastic source for how on earth people learned how to improvise polyphonically. Again, we've so canonized and it's a wonderful word, marmorialized, we've set in marble um, the practice of polyphony, especially the practice of one person's polyphony, um, Palestrina's polyphony. We've so set that in marble that we it's very difficult for us to look at it as a living way of making music done by people at a certain time 
because they needed to or because they wanted to, um, and in various different ways. Um, I think one of the traces, and again, this is this is me being a real geeky church muse, but one of the traces of that, of course, is the is the French organ tradition and the German organ tradition, where where um, students in that tradition, I am told, I don't know, will spend fifty percent of the time in improvisation class and fifty percent of the time learning repertoire. So it's it's still there in the margins again of classical music that that improvisation is as important as what you manage to write down. Um, and then that leads me on, I'm sorry, I'm going now, aren't I? But that leads me on to thinking about, it leads us on, doesn't it, to think about a church musician, I was talking about church musicians having church jobs. And of course, the very real fact that Lusitano as a black person was unable to get a church job in Portugal. Um, so again, these questions of legitimacy. So why wasn't Lusitano, you know, director of, you know, why was he not the maestro de capilla of Evera Cathedral? You know, had he been any good, why wasn't he? And well, the bull of 1518, ex nobis, which allowed African descended men to be ordained priests in Portugal, it specifically forbade them from receiving any kind of benefice or being responsible for any church property. So in one fell swoop, prevented any black person from from being paid to do any kind of work in the church or or have any responsibility um and so that's why we find in Lusitano's career I think that he again he's working on the margins and it's not I don't I would can I would I would suppose I would propose that that's not necessarily a result of his free choice um more likely the structural um legal racism that was in place at, at the time when he was ordained a priest. And his, you know, the, the printed works of his that we have uh, outside of, he has one book of motets that's printed mm. and there's um, a copy of a motet that he wrote when he went to Germany. Um, he had this, for those of you who don't know, he had this incredible life where he was born in Portugal and and worked there, mm. and then went to Rome mm -hmm. for a little bit, and then went to Nor uh, in the 1550s. He was in Rome, and then he went to Northern Italy, and then in the early 1560s or so, he went from Northern Italy. He converted from Catholicism to Protestantism, and went to Germany That's to right. try to make a career as a mm. Protestant church musician. Mm. We have one piece from that. Um, and there's some speculation that possibly he changed his name and continued his career because mm -hmm. that's where the trail ends. Mm -hmm. um, so he's this wonderful and mysterious and fascinating figure. Mm -hmm. His other from Northern Italy and from his time in Rome, he has this like small, like 30 page like composition and counterpoint and little bit of improv Mm. like manual which was like his which was obviously successful because there were three editions mm. and 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 show that he was a really hard must have been a really hard working pedagogue mm. and 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 he's such a if i were teaching composition mm. now he would be like a great such a great figure for resourcefulness for right. my students right and i think this is going to the idea that he even though he's from the 16th century his his story is still so urgent and relevant today, not mm. just because he faced 
socio-political and economic marginalization mm -hmm. because he was a, a, a person of African descent mm -hmm. in a in a racist Europe. Mm -hmm. And just as people of African descent in a racist United States and Europe and elsewhere are marginalized from the 16th century onward mm. or 15th century onward, I guess, mm. um, probably earlier too. And, um, but he's also, his career is kind of the career that historically we tend to look down upon, mm. but, but from a first person point of view of how do you make a career as a composer? Mm. Like he tried everything and he worked extremely hard at like, doing his craft in a way yeah. that's extremely admirable in the mm. face of huge obstacles. Mm. Mm. Um, it's, I think it's a really inspiring story from, he obviously, I mean, perhaps we, we don't really know what his relationship to music, like, did he like it? I, we don't know. Was it just his job? But there is, there is sort of this person, this incredible persistence in yeah. his work that that is that I I would in a romantic way would like to think shows someone who like deeply deeply cared about particularly the improvised polyphony component. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's something very. I mean, again, this one shouldn't you know there's a, there's the danger one gets sort of emotionally involved with the figure one studies, but um, or maybe that's not a danger. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just internalizing some idea of objectivity <laughs> that's been that's been sort of passed on. But um, I like the I I kind of like the idea that he's one of the that he is he is our best source best surviving source for preparing people for auditions for jobs which he himself at least in Portugal could not apply um and that that is is kind of devastating in many ways to think that that there's nothing that he writes about that is not required um for an audition we've got the audition um we've got the audition script or whatever you want to call it the audition schedule for Toledo Cathedral's director of music posts in the late in the early 17th century sorry and there's nothing in that job application that Lusitano doesn't teach in the mm -hmm. um in the manuscript and I think that's kind of it's kind of quite poignant poignant really um that that he obviously was so qualified to do this work um and yet yeah countless people presumably benefited from his pedagogy but but he himself couldn't actually couldn't get the, the material benefits um from it um in in the way that that others could um and that's a that's quite the thought and i, I don't know if we've talked about this already about him but getting married and going to to jail no, we, we haven't we did not, we did not. Yeah. so um and again i think it's quite interesting and it's difficult and this is something that I want to look into a bit more in research, but are there subtle acts of resistance in his, in his career, in his writing? There's a wonderful motet called um, Quid Montes Musee, um, which uh, the brilliant Gail Trimble from Trinity College Oxford reconstructed the poem um, for me, just so kind of her, um, with with our friend Lucy Matheson from Lincoln College, Oxford, and 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 it's the only secular piece in the Motet collection, and it 
ostensibly celebrates the movement of the household for which he worked, the Lancastri family. He was a tutor for the Lancastri family. He ends up in Rome. He travels to Rome with them. We we assume that he's in Rome at the same time he's been working for them. And he writes in the dedicatory preface to his motets that he couldn't have done any of this without their patronage. So we're going to let's assume that he was there as part of their entourage, or at least um, they were they were giving him some kind of support in Rome. And he writes this motet. We don't know who the author of the poem is. Robert Stevenson in 1982, great musicologist of marginalized composers, <laughs> great historian of marginalized composers. And um, Robert Stevenson. Um, in 82, supposes that Lusitano wrote the text himself. If he did write the text himself, he's one of the few Renaissance composers to, to write a text set to music that we know about. Um, but the text is, is ostensibly in celebration of this move and it addresses the muses and says, oh, we're, we're coming to this lovely place in Italy. But the way it talks about Portugal is so shady. Like it says, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's full of ravenous. So they're going, it's going to this lovely place in Italy. It's going to be great. You know, the muses were good. We're moving. It's going to be fantastic. Pack up your bags, muses. We're off. But it's like Portugal is full of horrible caves and ravening beasts and nasty rocks. And, and in one sense, you could say, okay, well, it's just a poetic. It's a poetic conceit to say, you know, we're moving from one place to another. And on obviously in 16th century Europe, Rome is the, the belly button of, of, of Western Europe. And, and therefore everybody wants to go there. But then put those words into the mouth of somebody who is discriminated against in the very least oppressed by that country, by that culture in Portugal. Um, and I think it has a different flavour. It can't not have a different flavour. We assume that he was a singer, um, as all uh, Renaissance composers were of vocal music. They sang their own stuff. So, so what did it, can you imagine what that kind of derogatory language about Portugal sounds like in the mouth of somebody who belongs to a group that Portugal is oppressing? It's a completely different flavour to, to just a poetic conceit. So is that a small act of resistance? I, I, I don't know. Is that his, his? Is that what he can do to resist um, the oppression of Portugal's structures? And then again, when you look at his motet Beati Omnis Quitiment Dominum, um, which is a setting of a psalm which is all about weddings and marriage, and that's the one that he wrote to try and get a job in Germany. Uh, and he wrote it, uh, it's preserved in a choir book in Stuttgart. Um, and that choir book is from the, the, sorry, the Ducal Court Chapel of Württemberg. Um, and um, we know that Lusitano um, was recommended to the Duke of Württemberg. And we even have the um, ledgers for the fact that the Duke of Württemberg paid Lusitano for some music. So we don't know if there's more music to be had, but, but that motet is in that choir book there um, under his name, copied in a different, in, in the hand of, of Chamahuber. Um, and it's a, it's a motet all about how brilliant it is to be married. Um, the text is, is, is well known. It's set by a lot of different composers. But you find moments like um, when, 
when it has words like uxor tua, your wife, uh, let's say someone like um, someone like Morales writes kind of quite conjunct flowing music for that. Lusitano's a, a setting of the words uxor tua is all fanfare, like jumps up and down. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of excited. It's really, really happy. It's really joyous. It's really triumphant. And again, what are we, we're looking at a person person singing this or writing this or somehow creating this music for whom marriage is not only something that that he's now allowed to do because he's no longer a priest but he's left an institution which wrote his hardwired his oppression into his ordination if that makes sense that the the that that papal bull in 1518 made him a kind of priest, but not 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 the kind of priest that his classmates were going to be, that his white classmates mm-hmm. were going to be. So again, it's like looking at this this person creating this music. Can we can we look through the lens of of what what we know he people of his identity went through at that time and start maybe to look at tiny acts of resistance. This is what I would like to look at <laughs> in the future and think about that, that even within, within the 16th century, that, you know, within something as formal as the motet style of the 16th century, that there may be these small acts of of resistance um, from from um, an oppressed person. I think that's it's such a beautiful idea to read these parts of his humanity and, mm. and what we have. I mean, it's not it we when you're dealing with a figure with such limited evidence. Mm. It's something that we have to do, but also have to do cautiously. Yeah, but of course. There are. Um, Somehow, Lusitano, even though we don't know very much about him mm. and don't have all the documentation we want, and hopefully, I mean, one of the things is he has not been researched intensively. Mm. He was not researched intensively until the 1960s. Mm. And so there was five, 400 years of just really almost no interest in him. Um, and so that means that there is probably still things to find about him, which is very exciting. Maybe things to find about other composers, because he probably was not the only Black composer in Europe at this time. It's hard to believe that there would only be one. <laughs> it's really and hard And there are other, there are other I'm, I mean, there are other yeah. m- musicians mm. and people mm. in adjacent to nobility who mm. are of African descent at the time. So mm. it's really hard to think that mm. he would be the only one. Um, but what, and so in that way, he sort of challenges a lot of our preconceived notions, notions about the Renaissance. Mm. But what I love so much about what, what continues to emerge when you look at the primary sources is this really deep connection between his life and his work yeah. in these different ways. So like what you're talking about in the text and the setting, um, and, and also the opportunities that he had. And, you know, like, was he resisting uh, the Catholic church? Well, he left and he left Italy. And he was, <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of an obvious thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I love how his story 
in addition to the fact that his identity is not supposed to exist mm. in the in the history of Renaissance music mm. in Europe, people with his identity aren't supposed to exist, and mm. he does. Mm. Um, he is also. It's really hard to look at his music without considering his life, and that's mm. not something we're supposed to do. No, that is very. With, that's very with, bad, isn't it? We're not allowed you know, to do the, that. If, if, if these composers are supposed to be gods, which mm. is how they're often treated, mm. we can't think about their humanity mm. because if we did, then mm. maybe some of them we might not want to spend <laughs> very much time with. Um, but, and, and so in that way, he's such a wonderful figure in my mind. Mm. This going back to the idea that he is not just a curiosity, mm. but this like really simple, meaningfully symbolic figure mm, mm. to to contemporary discourse around mm. how we f what we try to know about the history of mm. our field and the people in it mm. and he makes it lusitano makes it so difficult to proceed with all of these internalized assumptions mm. about how the history works mm. because like his his big rival nicola vincentino he published a lot yeah and you could go to the the you know the rationalization well he published a lot because mm. he was better mm. um but but if you actually look at the situation he had this powerful patron who mm. let him who like supported him for four years as he wrote like a a treatise a bunch of people made fun of at the time um uh but uh you know everything you look into. He would have been big seen. on Twitter, right? He was. Oh my! <laughs> in the worst, in the worst way, in the worst way. But every little aspect, in addition to illustrating the these modes of oppression. Yeah. But e even beyond that, which is really like for the sake of a thought experiment, you can't really separate that from mm -hmm. Lusitano's life. But every there, the, there are all these points that that speak to just differences in opportunity. Mm. Now those were maybe, a lot of those were related to his oppression, mm. but also just happenstance and chance and mm. things that mm. that in it, that are a factor in any composer's life. Mm. And so it's, he, he, he is this really interesting crystallization of the unpredictability and the uh, fragility of, what it is to just do this work and yeah. try to be a professional musician. And then you add these layers of he was legally prevented from having being remunerated for being, for yeah, being for composing. A, a, yeah. a church musician. Yeah. Um, so he's just such an interesting figure. I feel like we could talk for hours about him, but we need to, before we leave, with a recording of mm. some of Lusitano's music. I wish we could play Beati Omnis. I wish we could play Quid Montes, but there are no recordings. But some, oh. that could that could change. <laughs> yes. Why don't you tell people a little bit about the project you're trying to do, but it keeps getting delayed because of the pandemic. So yeah, so the, 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 trying, the project we're trying to do, it keeps getting delayed by the pandemic. It's that um, we want to make a CD recording. I see, does anyone, I see that, I'm showing my age. We want to make a recording um, of 
the the motets, not all of the motets, because that would take a very long time. Um, I would take up a lot of space, um, but at least um, a recording dedicated to his music, um, on which we will hear Quid Montes at least and um, Beati on this. Um, and we are going to do that hopefully in summer 22. So it's coming up and I'm, I miss the reason that it's it's been so difficult to assemble people is because I wanted to use as many um, uh, I wanted to use performers who who have a BIPOC identity um, I thought it was really important in the first the first kind of dedicated recording to his music that we also honor as I said before that there's something there is something to be said about the bodies who recreate this music that I wanted to that we wanted to to do that with 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 BIPOC performers we wanted that to be a moment a moment for BIPOC performers so hopefully that will come out after the summer 2022 touch wood if that's you're a superstitious person and um we shall we shall see um which is hopefully we're going to be able to do that. And uh, hopefully we're not going to get clobbered by pandemic delays again. But everything happens for a reason. So, you know, it gives you more time to think about the projects every time there's a delay. That's what I tell myself. Just think <laughs> you just have more time to think about it. Well, and, and what's important to note for people who don't understand the significance of this project mm. is there's one piece of his Hey, you may dominate, which is a very unusual piece in his output because mm. it wasn't really written for performance. Mm. It was a demonstration of the chromatic genus and how difficult it is to sing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I'm not even going to explain what that means because we will be here for two hours. And, but other than that, there are no commercial recordings. That's of, correct of his music there are a bunch of things on youtube which mm. is what we're going to mm -hmm. to um end up listening to um mm. and if we when you know when we think about again lusitano representing these re these iterating this iterating struggle to mm. leave traces to mm. use to bring in that quote that you that beautiful quote mm. that you gave us earlier you know he he printed some of his music but he was never written about so nobody looked to his music mm. to perform. And now from a contemporary perspective, there's no modern edition, which is also something, there, there are a bunch online now. There have been a, a bunch added to IMSLP and CPDL over That's the right. last year. Yeah. You're also working on a critical edition too, right? Yeah, Arnish Bohr and I, are, we've, we've just put our proposal in to, to do a scholarly edition, because there's, there's only only that one source survives, so a scholarly edition of the of the 1551 motets and also the Beati on these. Um, so, so watch this space for for all of that hopefully to come yes. to fruition next year but all of these things make his music more accessible which hopefully yeah. and especially the recording yeah um, will hopefully help there have been so there have been a lot of performances in the last year or so um which is very exciting um but we need these like I want to say physical because you're making a CD after all uh no but these like physical pieces mm. of his that represent, you know, his mm. achievements musically yeah. in order to keep the interest and appreciation going. Yeah. And that has not existed. No. Um, e even though in the late 19th 
century, there were some Portuguese music scholars who were like, hey, this guy wrote cool music, people should care. But they did it in Portuguese, so nobody could read it outside of Portugal. And Brazil. So, so and actually, Brazil, a lot of so, people could read it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, yeah. well not, the peop- not the people who wrote um, Grove music or no. uh, music in their uh Geschichte and Gelegenheit or whatever. That's <laughs> yeah. that's not the correct German language. Um, Gegenwart. Oh thank you. It's okay. Thank you. Um and and what and and I'm the one with a doctorate between the two of us. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know that. But um Joe, before we go, yeah. we're going to listen to um a performance of Hik est Michael on Archangelus which I'm sure I pronounced terribly. This is um, from a, a performance that was posted to YouTube in September of last year from the Church of St. Paul and St. Andrew in Montreal. And um, Jean-Sebastien Vallée, the conductor, is someone who uh, we've emailed with and um, is very, this is a beautiful performance. Yeah, it really piece. is. Yeah. And, and um, is, um, He's really he's one of the many choral conductors who's become really interested in Lusitano's music. Um, so before we go, is there anything about yourself, what you're working on, your music, uh, Lusitano, anything that you want to leave us with? Is there any way for people to find you because you're not really on social media? What what can you what what do you want to plug or leave us with or anything like that? Oh, I don't want to plug anything. Um, so I'm I'm very grateful to always just to be able to have a chat about the music of Vicente Lusitano, and uh, it's great to talk with you, Garrett, because you are such an important figure in Lusitano research. So you know, I mean, it's kind of I'm talking with the author of these things. So thank you very much. Well, you're also the author. We co-author. We're the co-author. Yeah, that's fair together. <laughs> um, and I will say that I learned about Vicente Lusitano from Melanie Zek, mm. who was a librarian at the the Center for Black Music Research. She now works for the Library of Congress. And so I owe what I've done to her, who whom she owes to other people. There's a really nice community and yeah. tradition with with his music. And, um, you know, Kate Lowe, the early modernist, has been a really good friend to our work as well. And um, it's really, it's, it's very fun research to do because we get to connect with, we've gotten to connect with a lot of people and share in, in our excitement about Vicente Lusitano. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you so much for, for joining thank the you. podcast. And um, I uh, can't wait for your recording to happen and we will promote it because it's going to, It's I'm sure it will be great. We've already heard that recordings you're involved with are really great. And also um, it's hugely important. So let's hope that there are no more delays. and No more delays. Um, and so without further ado thank you all for listening to this episode of lexical tones and we're going to go out with this performance of hikas michael archangelus by vicente lusitano this is one of his motets published in 1551 by from the liber primus epigrammatum published by the dorico brothers in rome and this performance is by the choir of the church of saint andrew and saint paul um, their chamber choir under the conducting of jean sebastian Vallée. Enjoy.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.